Mike, I, we have I some think... very tactical questions that I want to run by you and get your thoughts on these. And these these are coming yeah. from uh, salespeople who have who have territories across the uh, North America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's see. Let, all right, let's take a couple of these. First is. Wait, Ryan, is, Ryan. I want to. I want to highlight. I want to highlight one thing that he said that um, that I think you really did answer my question uh, very well. Uh, that there's not a definitive time to stop, but just know that too many salespeople quit too soon. I, I really want to take a time for our listeners to to highlight that. Um, and, and going back to everything you said as uh, as a hustler, you know, when you get that gut feeling of Maybe I should pull the plug. You know, it's just getting kind of long and winded to push through that because you know that too many salespeople just quit too early in the sales process. I, I, I wanted to take a moment and just highlight that. Well, that's that's great, Mitchell. So this one's this one's dove, it dovetails on ex- this exact topic. It's very specific, though. So here's the question, and we we've experienced this as salespeople. Um, you have a conversation with a what you think is a qualified prospect. The prospect says, wow, you know, it's what I call the love fest conversation. It's like, oh, this is great. We had a great meeting, whether this is done face-to-face or, or you do it over the phone. Maybe you do a demo, whatever it is. So you're at that stage in, in the sales process. You feel like you have a productive conversation. You get some verbal acceptance. Yes, we see value. Um, we're going to, we're going to make a decision and then they go dark and they go into this dark zone where it's like 60 days. You're, you're, you're kind of at a loss. Um, speak to that, Mike, what should you do? What should a salesperson do when that's happening? I knew when you started that question, you were going to end up with the deal goes dark. I just had, it had all the fingerprints on that's where you were going. Um, I think I think the first thing we do is we do a little postmortem, and we circle back and ask ourselves some really hard questions about our sales process. Because usually when deals go dark, it's because we skipped a lot of stuff between the first conversation and the first date. And when we got to demo stage or started talking about proposals or got down that, you know, started presenting and proposing, um, I I would say if a deal's going dark. We probably didn't meet enough stakeholders or didn't truly uncover their compelling issues or their willingness to go forward um, or even what their criteria might be for making a decision. And uh, I, I tell you, I'm going to give credit where credit's due. One of, one of my big influencers in this arena is Dave Curlin, who's got a book called Baseline Selling. And it's just really simple. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about taking the rules of, of selling and apply, you know, from rules of baseball and applying to what we know about selling. And his point's really simple, and I'm going to oversimplify this just for sake of brevity. You know, if we're, if we're going around the bases and we, we get a deal when we cross home plate, a lot happens when you get the first date and the first discovery meeting when they're on first base. And so often uh, we are in a hurry to get to demo or proposal stage. So we're on first base, we're taking a little lead, and we're, we need to find out all these things before we get around to maybe where the shortstop is. Uh, when we're going to start presenting stuff and then proposing when we round third base, and we and a customer falls in love with us or tries to short cycle, you know, short circuit the cycle and say, hey, give me give me a proposal for that or what, you know, come present to us, give us give us your dog and pony show, and the salesperson's so excited they go and do that, and and they skipped all these steps. They're trying to discover 
well, what's really going on in this situation? Who else is involved in the decision? What's the, what's the criteria? What's the budget? What's the urgency? Who are we up against? I mean, all that stuff really matters. And if you skip all that, and then you go do your demo or your proposal, and then they stop calling you back, well, shame on you because you didn't really find out what, what you needed to in order to sell them. So number one, I think we always go back and look what happened prior to a deal going dark. Number two, I think when you, if you're really following up on someone and you feel like you've done good sales process and they are, they are now being rude or unprofessional, I think it's up to us sometimes to call out the buyer on that. And I'll, I'll regularly tell someone, listen, at a professional courtesy, just shoot me a quick reply. Is it dead? Tell me it's dead. If I'm becoming a pest, I don't want to be a pest. I'll go away. If it's on the back burner, tell me that. But give me something. All the way to, I have a thing I do with some clients where I've created an, an A, B, C, D, E, multiple choice email. And in a very funny, self-deprecating way, I'll send a note to the prospect, and I'll say, listen, obviously I'm doing a crappy job getting you to respond to me. Um, I know you're busy. I don't want to fill up your inbox. I'm going to make this really simple. Respond with your one-letter answer. And I can't tell you, 80% of the time, I get a reply to this email. And I give them five multiple-choice responses that are usually funny. You know, you've been, on, you've been in Hawaii, and this is the last thing on your mind, all the way down to uh, this is on the back burner, and we're not going to do anything to – I was awful. I, you, you went some other direction. You were too nice to tell me. And the combination of the persistence and the, and the humor and giving them some choices, I, 80% of the time, the, the human side of them goes, I'm responding to this person because they, this was at least uh, a, a great attempt. And that unsticks the deal. And then at least you know where you stand. And so many times I've done that or I've seen clients do that. And then, boom, all of a sudden there's a dialogue again. So I think, I think it's being creative. I think it's being persistent. And it is, if you're doing good sales work, you never end one stage of the sales process without forcing, and forcing is a strong word, but let's, let's use it, forcing the prospect to agree to their next step and yours. It's not just that we're going to do the proposal. It's, hey, we'll do this and you do that. So we'll do the proposal and we agree we're going to talk again next Wednesday with your team to review this. So if you're doing a good job defining the next step, you can call out a prospect who's going back on their word and go, hey, you committed we were going to have this conversation. Let's, let's have that now. And most people are good people, and most people are high integrity. And if you call them out on that, they realize, you know, that's right. I, I did commit to that. I've got to ha- give this guy, you know, some feedback. So I, I hope that helped. That's just some of, the, some of the tips when a deal goes dark. Extremely helpful. Next question for yeah. you. This is, this is right in line with it. How do you execute an RFP when you aren't invited to any type of presentation or meeting and you can't get the decision maker or buyer on the phone prior to submitting your response to the RFP? So classic scenario, they want to control the buying process completely, and they're doing it in a vacuum. This is one of the most painful situations in in all of sports, in all of sales. <laughs> uh, I, I, hate, I hate everything about this. I could tell you long stories about procurement people and some of my large clients and, and the, the wars that I'm in with them. Um, my longest-term client right now is dealing with this situation with one of their dream prospects. And we have a rule that we've instituted because they've never won like almost everyone else. I don't know anyone in the history of man in sales that has ever won a blind RFP. And I, when I say blind, I mean some company we were not pursuing sends us a proposal that they want us to complete, and they will not meet with us beforehand. I don't know of – I don't mean like zero, like a small percent. I know of zero deals that have ever been won in that situation. So my rule is very simple. 
if I get an RFP that I didn't earn from someone that is going to market to shop, and I'm in a company, particularly if I'm a significant player in the space, my rule is real simple. I'm happy to do the 19 hours of work and fill out your response under one condition. We get a discovery meeting with you before we submit our response. If you want us to play the game, we are happy to play, and we will put all the resources to create the best. But in order to respond, we must meet with the key stakeholders to understand your current situation. And if you'll give us the courtesy of that discovery meeting, we will do the 19 hours of work. If you will not, we're going to decline. And no one ever seems to mind implementing that because it's not really a risk because no one can ever tell me the time in history where any sales guy anywhere has won any deal on a blind RFP for people they didn't meet beforehand. Now, if someone could show me the case where that happened, and it wasn't just because we had the lowest price piece of crap, because most of my clients are not low-cost providers, then you know there's no reason not to do that. So that my rule is you get the meeting or you don't do the work. Because as, as Mahan Khalsa said in that great book, let's get real or let's not play, you have rights too as a seller. And when you play the buyer's game and you always default to the buyer's process, we do a lot of work, but we usually don't score a lot of points. And in, in, in sales, we get paid to win. We don't get paid to, to write proposals. Is that too blunt? I'm curious for your guys' take. Um, no. Experience, Not Mike. at all. Yeah, it's the same deal. Yeah, my experience has been this, absolutely the same. Um, yeah, you're you're simply not – you're not really in the game when that happens. You, you're being shopped. You're being used. You're being um, – it's a reference point for someone typically who – doesn't actually own the problem, you know. So the person who is assigned to go and collect this information doesn't own the problem. So they're approaching it with a level of, I guess you could call it objectivity, but also blindness. So they're not actually making a, a good decision uh, when they when they look this way. Awesome. Yeah, and, and then that leads to the next point. The way most RFPs are written, you get suboptimal responses because they're stupid. They're, they're structured in such a way you can't even be creative, and they don't want to look at your best work. They just want you to answer their questions and fill in their boxes, which, you know, and the guy that mentioned me, I mentioned earlier, I mean, he taught me. Your, your job is not to do it. Don't, he always tells me, don't let the client tell you how to consult. When I get a call from someone that says, hey, we need a two-day sales management retreat, what's your price? I'm like, slow down, back up. Who are you? Why did you call me? And what is going on? And why do you think a two-day management mm-hmm. retreat is going to fix, fix whatever your issue is that you want me to do it? Like, you know, don't let them tell you what to do. And a lot of times we get those RFPs, that, and it, it, it stifles the creativity. I don't, think, I don't think customers are getting the best from suppliers because they take away the creativity, and they, they want to put everybody in a little box. And I think it produces suboptimal responses and suboptimal solutions. Wow. Awesome. Mitchell, you have any points on this one? Um, I, I have some questions um, in regards to referrals. So uh, with the sales guy that I work with, we get a, we get a lot of uh, questions of, you know, oh, that, that sounds great. Um, can I speak to anyone who's using it currently? Um, and and kind of what are, what are best practices when it, when it comes to that? Um, you know, just how, you know, how do you keep control of that, um, you know, and, and, and not let it just, you know, they, they go asking anyone they want. Um, mm-hmm. Just what are kind of best practices when it comes to referrals? To references, to getting, to getting references. Yeah, I, right. I, that's a hard one, and I would say I'm not an expert here. I have a couple opinions, <clears throat> and, and I think the way I like to couch it is and we're happy to give you a handful of appropriate references at the right 
phase in this process. Um, because of our situation in the market and as popular as we are, um, I can't have my best clients having four conversations a week with our prospects so they wouldn't be happy to be references for us. I'm sure you can understand that. So when we get to the place where you have, you're down to the finals and we're one of two or you're at the point of deciding to choose us, we are absolutely happy to give you a significant list of some of our, our longer-term and shorter-term clients. But that is not something we can give you this early in the process because we're at this stage with a whole lot of companies, and I, it's not fair to do that. If you were my client, you wouldn't want me uh, you wouldn't want to take a phone call every week or more than one call, phone call a week, right, to serve as a reference for me, would you? No. So thank you for understanding that. And I think, honestly, if you have yeah. that kind of guts, it says something that you're selling from a, uh, an abundance mentality and you're good and you know it and you've got lots of work going on and you don't just do everything the prospect tells you to. I've got an ebook on um, how to upgrade from uh, just being a vendor to being a value creator. And, and the seven sins that, that get us relegated to vendor status. And one of the things that gets us relegated is we become yes men, and we do everything the prospect asks us to do, and we salute, and we think we're going to win by scoring like responsiveness and obedience points. And that usually doesn't work out for us. So I think when you own your process a little better, and you push back, and you have a good reason, all of a sudden in their mind, if they're legit, if it's really a, the real buyer and not some procurement weenie, you, you move up in their mind like, oh, this, this company's serious. This salesperson has process. Hmm. They, he's trying to protect his clients by not getting them abused. By Every week they're getting a phone call from some guy that may not even be buying from them. Is that, is that a fair response, Mitchell? I guess that's my question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, just, I mean, it, I mean, it, it fits in and, with, and it is aligned with, you know, everything you've been saying, you know, uh, you know with the RFP, just, just kind of own – the process and you know know your right as a seller to to own that process that that's very helpful well mike this has uh, been this has been great um i you know what i'd like to do is is i want to conclude this session but i want to end with um maybe one last thing i pulled out and this came from your your management book and it was in the this section about talent management um, but i think it has to do with or at least in my notes this is what i wrote I wrote wattage equals hustle, and here was the quote, and this came from – I think it came from your dad. My dad, yeah. I said, it's not the power of the electric company that lights the room. It's the wattage of the bulb. Thoughts on that quote? Yeah, I take zero credit. I stole it right from my dad. It's, it's the reminder – he, he said that for two reasons. He came out of really big companies and a big senior executive, and it was the reminder of, to all the internal people in the company who work so hard developing programs and all this stuff and trying to force it down into the sales rep's hands that you can create the greatest program in the world, but if you don't have the right salesperson that's going face-to-face -face with the customer, it doesn't matter. They're, the wattage is the bulb in the room, not the power of the electric company that, that lights up the room. So you've got you to gotta have the right people. And the other piece that he used that, that to remind me all the time is that so many of us in leadership roles, we spend all of our time dealing with our problem children and working with our underperformers. And my dad just wants to smack people when he hears it. He goes, listen to me. Who can get you the most new business? Where are you, if you're really behind and you've got trouble and you've got to go, go, go and find business, who can get you the most business? It's your best people. So his management philosophy is go over and invest in your best people. 
go clear their roadblocks, remove their obstacles, coach them, give them the best opportunities, keep everyone out of their way, tell them how much you love them, and let them go produce, and let your top guys go double the business instead of spending all your time trying to pick up the people that aren't carrying their own weight anyway because that's, that's an untenable situation. So it's, it's got two applications there, and it's, it's really good wisdom. And unfortunately, it's, it's contrarian because if you look at most people in management, that's really where they spend most of their time, designing programs that they're going to force through everybody, even though the talent isn't there to execute. Or they're overwhelmed trying to coach up their underperformers, and they're neglecting their top people because they think everything's fine, which that's a silly, a silly philosophy. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. Mitchell, do you have anything else? You know, again, thank you so much. This is this has truly been uh, so helpful. And, um, you know, I, it, I I mean, I don't even have words. You, you've been such a, a wealth of knowledge, Mike, and I, I really appreciate that you're willing to come onto the show and 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 spend some time with us. Well, I'm honored. I uh, I love talking sales and sales leadership. This is my passion. So. Uh, you know, if you're if you're uh, if your audience or you know your hustlers are, are curious about me, I mean, I I write just like I speak. If this tone is interesting, uh, I would just offer check out the books. You know, New Sales Simplified and and Sales Management Simplified. And I wish uh, everyone great selling and and great sales leadership. Mike, if folks want to um, if folks want to learn more about you and get in touch with you, where should they go? Uh, I've got a, a website, uh, real simple, newsalescoach.com, newsalescoach.com, and I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, Mike underscore Weinberg, W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G. And uh, I'm, I'm not blogged as much as I should there, probably about once a week, but that's where they can learn more. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks a bunch. Thank you, Mike.